the monotony is going to get eaten up by AI. And we now have the opportunity to unlock what it is that's really special about each person and to bring that to the forefront in each of our organizations. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Welcome, folks, to episode 168. This episode is about shifting your mindset on the human potential of AI. Our guest this week is Nathan Lesnowski, the Chief Technology Officer at Concurrency, a leading consulting partner for data, AI, security, digital operations, and managed IT services. And of that list, artificial intelligence is the topic of the day. So here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll ease into the conversation a bit and hear how Nathan became more and more focused on AI throughout his career. Second, we look at the artificial intelligence revolution in the context of other significant moments in technological advancement, and Nathan shares some examples that I feel really demonstrate the true potential of AI. Third, and finally, Nathan shares some tips as to what actions executives and frontline workers should be taking right now around AI. As always, if you want to learn more, check out the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 168. And if you're intrigued by conversations like this one about artificial intelligence and other trends in manufacturing, well, hey, you need to be part of our Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community over on LinkedIn. Get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Do me a favor, shoot me a note as well on LinkedIn so I know that you're interested in joining so that there's context. But if you do that, I will let you right in. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. That link will take you straight to our LinkedIn group. All right, this episode, we're actually heading to one of my favorite breweries in Milwaukee. I'll tell you all about that in just a second because it's time to meet up with Nathan Lasnowski. Nathan, welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Glad to be here. I know you're on the other side of the, there's actually kind of a good distance between us here at uh, this nook in the brewery that we're at here at Central Waters Brewing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, not too far from the Deer District, not too far from where the Bucks and our alma mater, Marquette, play. Have you been to this brewery before? I haven't. I haven't, no. But it's, as you say, it's like steps away from my alma mater. Yeah. So great opportunity to go visit there and come over here. Yeah, I was going to say, right on the other side of uh, this is Marquette's campus. So yeah, kind of a halfway point walk into the games. We were just actually just talking to Jordan down at the bar, and he was saying that uh, they get a big Marquette crowd because it's like on the way from campus walking over. So it's a good spot. And for the history buffs out there, I got to say, this is in the old Paps Brewery, famous brewery here in Milwaukee. Obviously, everyone knows PBR still, still brewed, but not here. But it's in what used to be, well, it was the Paps Pilot House before this. It was like, a you know, Paps Tap Room. But before that, it was a chapel for the folks that worked at the brewery as well. I think their families as well. But we're literally inside of a tap room that looks like an old church here cool at Central Waters. It's very cool. It's very cool. Good spot for this. And we're kind of removed from all the action up top where 
guess the choir would have been back in the day now that I think about it. So <laughs> preach the good news. Exactly. Preach the good news, talking about manufacturing. And let's get into the first question for you. So if we were having a drink with one another, like we are today, I have to I, I get so used to saying that theoretically now because I don't do all of these in person anymore. But like you yeah, actually are having a drink together. We actually are having a drink on a lovely Friday afternoon. What does it mean to focus on real productive AI within companies? Because this conversation is all about artificial intelligence today. So I want to hear it from you. Yeah, man. All right. Well, that's a, that's a big question. What I'm finding companies are needing to do is they're needing to think about the mission of AI in the context of their business. So they have, their business has a mission, right? Their yeah. business exists for a reason. They're there for a reason. They're there to impact the world. And they're going through a new translation of that business in the context of AI. They have to kind of like put on the AI glasses and say, like, how's that going to impact who I am? So when we start talking to them, there's a lot of abstractness to that conversation. There's a lot of people who still feel like it's a little bit of science fiction. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I'm not sure what it means for my business. And what we do is we help translate that sort of abstractness of AI into something real and tangible in the context of how they impact what they do. And that's usually either via driving new revenue opportunities mm-hmm. in their products or in the way that they sell, top line, trying to create more opportunities with their customers, or it's via driving operational savings in the context of how they produce. Okay. So, so like we have customers that are enabling AI in their very product, uh, such as uh, AI-enabled boating products that are tied to helping their their uh, customers to have great experiences on the water and know where they should boat and where they should tie up and what the kind of weather is going to be like today and whether their boat's battery is going to make it through the month. Uh, And to layer on these sort of premium services as a component of that, what the customer is getting as a result, Mm -hmm. or it might be something totally on the operational side, like this sort of balance between supply and demand and how I optimize that. A lot of our customers are are looking at the relationship between what do I need to do for my customers? What do I need to produce for that for my customers? Mm-hmm. And they're still banging away at spreadsheets trying to actually make that happen. Yeah. So there's this tremendous opportunity to be able to use artificial intelligence actually to solve a really old problem yeah. in a new way. So it's a, it's a very opportunity-rich space if companies focus on the ROI side of it and that being a primary guiding light of how they attack the problem but also stepping back to say, I need to think about this very broadly in the context of the mission of my business, Mm -hmm. and then drive into those use cases and try to figure out how they create value in the end. So we're going to dive into this more later, but you talked about using AI to drive new revenue and to drive operational savings. Those were the two big examples I heard. Before we get into that, we got to get your story a little bit. How did you start to become an AI guy, as we'll say it? Like, what is what is your story that got you here? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, so not a Johnny come lately in this space. So we've yeah. been doing AI work for about eight years. Uh, hired my first data scientist to concurrency about that same time. I got to say, that was the coolest interview that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of, right? So that was when it was like, not really, it was cool, but it wasn't like the known thing in the market interviewed this gentleman. He was doing AI to be able to predict how uh, how the neurons fire within the brain to be able to help solve tinnitus. Yes. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. This is, this is crazy and awesome all at the same time. You actually do this with data science. And uh, that really, for me, ignited this, this fire that this is where the world's going to change. Yeah. This is, this is the opportunity for us to be able to use AI as a 
vehicle to exponentially multiply the capabilities of the human person. And that took off very slowly, mm -hmm. but it took off in a way that we saw value with accounts that decided to really buy into that idea. I guess the way I like to think about it is um, as, as we got started was companies had to put a lot of chips on the table to be able to make an investment. Mm -hmm. They had to say, this is where my my future of my organization is going to be going. This is where I'm going to put my reputation and my, my relationship capital within my organization, and I'm going to see it pay off. So first project we did was one of uh, supply demand inventory forecasting. One that followed that was like an old school NLP tied to quoting and accelerating the time to quote for customers. Okay. And all of that really proved to me that this is something that is not just for the academics or the big sort of weather forecasting programs, but something that's real for a middle market manufacturer. And that's where we took it from there. So that, we used that opportunity to be able to explode how we engaged in AI by helping companies envision that and think about where their business can go as an asset using AI as part of their mission. And as this has taken off with the whole chat GPT craze and everything that's happening now, it's enabled us to be able to bring a lot of those stories to the table to help companies make it real. So that's what's really made it exciting for me. It's this sort of opportunity to be able to get out of the, the mainstream of just normal IT worlds mm -hmm. and get straight to the heart of the business. Like, I mean, I've been in IT consulting for 22 years and mm -hmm. I've never experienced a point where technology has so quickly gone to the heart of every organization. Yeah, They've had to think about it in the context of the very business itself. And the envisioning sessions are not just with some group of IT people, it's with the president and the CFO and the vice president of sales and the COO of the company thinking about where's my organization going to be in one, two, three, four, five years? And how does this change the way I think about the way I execute on my mission? So that's been uh, a huge blessing to be able to be part of. And it's been a great spot to, to help companies win. So you were saying forecasting and quoting. I'm going back. I'm going to go back to a couple things in yeah. your answer there. So can you give me an example of, of what AI looks like in forecasting or quoting. Pick one. I just kind of want to get an idea of what, how artificial intelligence is making this easier for me because, you know, I've, I'm a business owner now. I've been a salesperson. I've had to do both of these things before. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a bit more of an example, particularly for the folks out there that are probably doing some of this in their own jobs as well. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So I worked with a company that remanufactures ink cartridges. Okay. They're one of the biggest you remanufacture the cartridges in the in the United United States, and they also remanufacture cell phones. And they have huge customers and they have small customers. Think like AT and T and Zaza's cell phone exchange, right? Like mm -hmm. big and small. So they sell big chunks of cell phones or in cartridges to companies. And they sell like lots of little orders to companies. Mm -hmm. And then behind that exists some guy yeah. who's got to figure out like how many orders am I going to get this week. Where do I produce those orders and how much raw material do I need to be able to do that? Yeah. Okay, so that's the problem that every single manufacturer deals with in some capacity is like, mm -hmm. what do I, what am I selling? What do I need to sell it? What do I buy it at? What's the price I bought it at? Where do I store it in the facility? All that production problem. What we've experienced is that companies are solving that problem in really traditional ways. Mm -hmm. The ERP providers haven't done a good job of solving it. And most companies are exporting it to some form of Excel or some kind of uh, like side third-party tool that enables them to be able to kind of look at the problem. Yeah. The issue is that 
that those companies, and this company in particular, as we using as an example, mm-hmm. their efficiency on that is lacking. A couple of different reasons why. One, intuition sometimes is the enemy of improving the demand inventory forecast. Okay. What we think is the right choice to make actually ends up being the opposite of what we should be making in certain choices. Just like like when the market's crashing and and I'm choosing to pull my stocks out, that may have been exactly the time to buy. Sure. That my emotions are dragging me or or the influence of people around me are dragging me in a certain certain direction. So that's that's one reason. Second reason is people just aren't that good at math. Like sure. I can't put all that into my head and come up with an intuitive response. Now, I might know a lot about the business. I might know that like in certain periods of the year, macroeconomically, I'm going to have these different types of effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, around this particular season, maybe I sell increasing demand because of the characteristics of the season. But it's uh, it, it's I can't predict down to enough uh, precision that enables me to get to where I'm at. So what uh, what AI enables us to do is to take all those factors, things that people have intuition on, and things that are uh, are things that I can't have intuition on, just pure data, and turn it into a more accurate forecast of what is my incoming demand and what do I need to match that up to yeah. in the price and the cost of the actual materials behind it. So for this one company we worked with, it was about a two billion dollar company, and year over year they saved about fifty million dollars of inventory efficiencies that they can then redirect to another part of their business. Uh, that was an interesting story because this was pre-pandemic, okay? So pre-pandemic, pre-normalized demand situation, right? When they entered into the pandemic, they then were able to do storytelling of, this is coming, what do I do about it? Yeah. And then as they come out of the pandemic, what do I do about it now with my upcoming demand and inventory forecast? Mm-hmm. And that's enabled them to make sort of storytelling oriented choices that aren't just sort of predicting what's going to happen, prescribing what I should do about it, but even then modeling what the forward choices could be to be able to optimize the efficiency of my business. So that's just sort of one example on the operational side. One thing, would you would it be safe to say that AI enables objective intuition for lack of a better word like that's something that kind of came to uh, that was just the way i was thinking about it as you were telling that story because yeah intuition and emotion can get in the way of those things but this all this feels like a way that makes that at least slightly more objective and takes some of the emotion out of that decision it's funny that you say that because we've referred to ai as automating intuition okay okay (laughs) (laughs) the idea that uh i can there's there's nothing wrong with the fact that people have intuition. Sometimes that intuition really is just another factor to the model. That person knows something. Someone has been working there 42 years, right? He knows something about the way this business works. How do I take that information and factor it into the way that I model what my demand inventory forecast is going to be? Mm-hmm. So that's where the partnership comes in. There's, yeah. there's always going to be a... AI and human partnership that enables the best results. You're not going to just use AI. You're not just going to use the human. You're going to enable those two things together to be able to accomplish the end. What we've noticed in some of these these types of projects like that is as you start down the road, you're essentially proving that the AI model in conjunction with human intuition is going to be better than any one of those two things by themselves. Mm -hmm. You're showing the prediction against the previous prediction that you would have used and showing, oh, that's better. Now, actually, what we find in that is that most companies actually don't measure 
the accuracy of their inventory demand predictions. Okay. They just do it. They just, they're doing demand inventory forecasting, but did they really measure whether or not that was accurate? Vast majority of companies we talk to aren't. So first off, you're going to start getting them measuring it. Then you move them into, wow, this is interesting. What, What we're coming out with is objectively better, objectively better choices than we would have made. And you start inching forward and using that in your planning exercises. At some point, that becomes the default norm of how you're making making your inventory demand decisions. And then the human is essentially validating that, shepherding it, inserting additional data, knowing that a circumstance is coming up in the world. Like these demand inventory forecasts don't have eyes and ears, right? So they may not know that a war is broken out in Ukraine and we need to do, that might impact the way we're selling business somewhere. And now I need to think about how I ingest some of those factors into the storytelling of the model. So when you combine that human intuition of what's happening in the world with that, you're able to get to an outcome that's more powerful. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Gray Solutions. Gray Solutions is a systems integrator that's been there, done that. Manufacturers turn to their team of over 275 solutioneers with unusual challenges, head scratchers others couldn't or wouldn't dare take on. Gray Solutions has done this time and time again thanks to their in-the-trenches experience and beyond-the-box applications in production. Personally, I've really gotten to know Gray Solutions over the past few years. I've seen the accolades they've received from the industry. I've gotten to know their solutioneers and their expertise in everything ranging from automation and controls to digital transformation, cybersecurity, robotics, vision, process packaging, all the way up to some significant turnkey solutions. But most recently, I got to know their founder and CEO, Walker Maddox, during his appearance on episode 158 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. If you want to hear for yourself how Walker has turned Gray Solutions into more than just a systems integrator, but a team of industrial trailblazers that let curiosity lead them to creative solutions and profitable outcomes for their customers, then head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 158 to tune in today or visit them at graysolutions.com. I'm excited to see how Gray Solutions continues to innovate and revolutionize smart manufacturing. I recommend that you see for yourself as well. And now, back to today's episode. Yeah, and, and one thing I was writing down here just a second ago was something that's similar to what AI is doing right now. It's it's creating things, it's creating situations that have happened to humanity and business before. What AI is allowing you to do, what really stuck out was you said people aren't measuring the accuracy of their forecasting more often than not today. And this is just another example of how a new technology, in this case AI, is helping people measure things they couldn't before. We talk about the Internet of Things on this show and digital transformation, and a lot of that is connecting disparate systems that you didn't have connected before to all of a sudden start showing all the data, bring together the, delay, the, the data, putting analytics on top of that, and being able to make decisions by having that more holistic view that, again, you didn't have before. So yep. when when people get concerned about AI I feel like it's often just, you know, the the scare tactics, the main headlines. They're not thinking about all these little incremental improvements that have happened over time when new technologies get introduced, which is exactly where I'm going to go with the next question as well, because I was watching a video of yours the other day and you were talking about 
you know, the effects of the Industrial Revolution, where all of a sudden craftspeople were forced to put a square peg in a square hole. Yeah, I think yeah. was the way you described it. The creativity that they used to apply towards their jobs had been removed. So the question I have is, how is the AI revolution, this is a two-part question, but part one is, how is the AI revolution a similar moment to the industrial revolution? Yeah, so I think the biggest way that the AI revolution is similar to the industrial revolution is that we're taking something that had a, had a way of normally doing it before, and we're incrementally or disruptively replacing that way of doing something with mm -hmm. a increasingly automated form of it. Yeah. So, you know, industrial revolution took something like I'm going to build a, this, this chair that's sitting in front of me, right? Like I'm going to craft this chair. I'm going to take all this. I'm going to take the wood. I'm going to take the elements. I'm going to build this with my bare hands and create something out of it. Uh, books used to be kind of handwritten down and copied prior to the printing press. You had these mm -hmm. sort of activities that would happen in a very manual way that required a ha huge degree of human engagement mm -hmm. to be able to achieve the outcome. What happened as a result of many of the you know, industrial revolution and other you know, historical automations that happened is we're able to produce exponentially more yeah. outputs. And that normalizes the ability for the sort of goods and services that people can, uh, can acquire at a lower plus or lower price point that's attainable to the the masses of humanity, right? Yeah. So like general sort of general state of being of uh, of living kind of increases, right? Our ability to produce for everyone increases. Um, so AI is going to do the same thing, right? AI is going to take things that uh, that that would have required a quote would have required a a effort before mm -hmm. and would have increased that. So for example, I've got a company I'm working with where they've automated their quoting process. They have six hundred something sales reps. Those sales reps get an email from a customer asking for a uh, quote for this complex product, and then they take a series of hours to turn that into a written quote that gets sent back. Right. In this business, the time to quote is one of the number one predictors of winning business. Mm -hmm. So what they used AI for was to ingest that, that request from the customer and then automate the creation of that quote that they can then turn right back around and get in front of the customer and in this case, only a couple minutes. Yeah. So they reduced time to quote from like hours to minutes. Yeah. So you can see the like ridiculous impact of that. Also the impact that on the how the humans using their time. Mm -hmm. So the relationship between industrial revolution in this case is like, wow, like not only am I just able to produce things faster, but now even human processes, things that would have taken uh, even a human a long time to do, I've forced multiplied to a huge extent and enabled like the the exponential productivity to rise even greater than what like machining had accomplished in the past. I always think about this. I shouldn't say always because this is a relatively new way of thinking for me. But when I think about AI and in my current workflow, like I love creating and telling stories, and doing the podcasts. I don't, you know, the quoting and looking at how my business is going to be performing over the next three months, six months, making doing my own form of forecasting as well. That's not the stuff I enjoy the most. I'm just looking at this and thinking it's like, boy, if AI is allowing us to start really just allowing us to focus on kind of the result, like you're saying, and not the nitty gritty that goes into these non-core tasks as I look at it, I'm all for it. The other thing I wanted to ask you, the, the second part to this question is, 
How is the AI revolution, how does it have the potential to unlock more human creativity that I think you've been getting at that? But let's let's dive a layer deeper. You've been talking about what it can get rid of or automate or reduce the time we spend doing. What does it, on the other hand, open up more time for? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's interesting because you have to sort of deal with the fear factor in order to get to that point. So like, if you take some- I like that you said that when we're in like throwing distance of the Bucks stadium <laughs> where the slogan is fear the deer. Anyway, didn't mean to interrupt, but it was too much. <laughs> um, so if you think about like, let's take that quoting example or uh, some of the other examples we see are like automating some process. Someone looks at a contract, they have to match that contract to the order. They need to match that order to something else. There's this process that you can automate to not have a human perform. Well, the immediate thing we need to think about is, well, if I'm the human doing that job, well, how do I perceive that change? Yeah. In the same way that the Industrial Revolution changed, like, hey, if I was building chairs and now I'm sitting there putting square pegs into square holes, like, how does that change who I am? This is an opportunity that we need to look at bigger, I think, than we even look at now. Like, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Like, AI is everywhere. Everybody's talking about its amazing impact upon our society. But when I talk to business people who are like thinking about how this impacts their organization, they're thinking about it in use cases, they're thinking about maybe in the mission of their business, but they're not really stepping back to understand that every employee within their organization is going to be impacted in a positive or negative way as a result of this. And it's our duty to help this become an opportunity to turn every person to the best version of themselves. And where AI enables us to do that is exactly kind of where you're going down the road of. Yeah. There's all these things that we do that we've gotten used to being our job. Yeah. The repeatable task that I have been now trained to do, and we almost in some cases forgotten how to be creative, and individuals like will be not creative in their everyday job and then go home and do something that's incredibly creative in their spare time. Yeah. Building yeah. things or, uh, or artistry or knitting or whatever, whatever it is that, you know, you, you enjoy doing, right? It's this unlocking of this creative spirit of humanity because your job is so monotonous. This is exactly where we're going to see the change in our businesses because the monotony is going to get eaten up by AI. And we now have the opportunity to unlock what it is that's really special about each person and to bring that to the forefront in each of our organizations. So when you think about like the exponential growth, like, yeah, production, exponential growth and production is a good thing, Mm -hmm. but is it really the end we're looking for? Maybe not. Maybe the end we're looking for is truly, are all the people on the earth, are they able to be the best versions of themselves? And that unlocks a whole new level of what each manufacturer can be in the context of their customers and how they produce and how they execute on their mission. Yeah. So it's really a beautiful opportunity, but we have to think about it that way. We can't just be so like myopic about like this use case and that's it. We have to think about it in the context of my business in five years means this change. Mm-hmm. It's uh, since we're both uh, Marquette University guys, we'll put this in Jesuit terms. It's like more you can you can dial back into your vocation or the things that bring you fulfillment. Um, yes. I really like the spin you put on that. And I think the the quote that sticks out the most is AI can help bring out the best versions in people because it's funny that this is coming at a time when side hustles have become such a thing. Totally. Because, you know, I, I think, one, there was some necessity to it, right? As costs were rising. I was living in the Bay Area for a while. And yes, my my day job at Rockwell was enough to make ends meet, more than enough to make ends meet. But 
it still didn't stop me from taking on a gig as a tour guide in the hate where I would go from, I was literally a craft beer tour guide in hate Ashbury, like taking people to three breweries, giving them a tour of the neighborhood, talking yeah. about the Grateful Dead, all the history there and grabbing a couple beers along the way. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like hopefully what this does, it allows people to bring that side hustle creativity and energy to some of their day jobs as well. So uh, another question, you mentioned that you're doing envisioning sessions with executives and it's typically the like the executives the leaders of the company that are in the room thinking about what ai and transformation can do for their companies one to five years down the line was was what i picked up uh, uh, in that same line of thinking you know what are the right questions that executives should be asking themselves about ai right now we talked about it a little earlier but I want to make sure we're doing the right things to not put the cart before the horse. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. The first thing that executives need to think about, and I, I mentioned this before, is they need to understand truly what is the mission of their business mm -hmm. and how does that mission relate to where the future needs to take them. And the, why the mission is so important is because sometimes we get wrapped into how and we're not worrying about the why and the what. We need to start there. We need to start with the why and the what before we get into these how conversations. So start with that point. Then an executive needs to think about what are the disruptive opportunities and what are the incremental opportunities? Okay. A lot of times we focus on the incremental opportunities because they're there. Think incremental as like the things that we're already doing only faster. Mm -hmm. So uh, a company that spends the four hours to quote I can now spend five minutes to quote. That's a very incremental process. Yeah. Uh, I, I am automating this thing that I used to take me an hour to do. Now it's five minutes to do. That's an incremental process. I'm producing something in the demand inventory space, another incremental process, right? So that's a, it's a very rich opportunity. And oftentimes it's the first place that people go after, mm -hmm. but it's not the moonshot. Yeah. And where an executive really needs to think in the disruptive space is the more existential ideas around their business. Okay. If I had to start my business from the ground up, imagine you have no facilities, you have no, uh, no sales products, you have no employees, you have nothing. You just have the mission of your business. You know that that's what you want to do in the world. How would I execute that mission with mm -hmm. the AI as an asset to my organization? How would that change the way I go to market? How would it change the way I sell to my customers? How would it change the way that I interact with my employees? All of that has the opportunity for people to think big. The biggest thing that keeps us from disrupting is ourselves. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to disrupt your own company because a lot of companies are making money. They're selling products. They're producing. They're delivering value. But all it takes is that organization that doesn't have all those sunk costs and sunk way of doing business to engage with their customers in a transformative way that disrupts their way of engaging with the organization. It may even be less feature rich, but it may be hitting them exactly where they're at. And AI is what's going to enable us to do that, either in the very product of our business or in the way that we think about our product. So I'll give you an example. Like I have a company that is a global food distributor. They do billions of dollars of food distribution. And they make all their money in a very low margin business by selling the distribution of food back to those you know, restaurants and convenience stores and, and uh, you know, other types of organizations that need that food distributed to them. And that's a really challenging business because it's so cutthroat in terms of the price of a particular food product. Mm -hmm. And it's not particularly sticky because one, you might switch from one distributor to another and get generally the same products from month to month. What 
this company is doing is they're understanding we're not just in the food distribution business. We actually know what successful restaurants look like because mm-hmm. the restaurant business turns over tremendously, right? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an efficiency problem. It's a presentation problem. It's a sales problem. Mm-hmm. So they know a lot about via their distribution of products, what, what successful restaurants buy, when they buy it, what, what composes their, their menus, mm-hmm. how they interact with their customers. And they can use the data that they've gathered about that organization to say, here's what you should be doing. So that lets them layer on a whole new set of services that make them more of a services provider to their customers than making them just a distributor to their customers. And that service provider capability is tremendously more profitable mm-hmm. and it's tremendously more successful for the business, for the restaurant. Like I can get food from anywhere. But if my business is tied to making restaurants successful and having a higher percentage of them stay in business and be successful, and I can show that against my competitors, holy cow, I've just completely disrupted the way that people think about this particular industry. So that's what you have to kind of think about is, how do I take my business to market in a new way in the age of AI and not let that disruption happen to me? Let me, let us bring it to the market. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. Do you build control panels? Do you want to reduce your overall project time by 59%? Then you should check out ePlan because that's exactly what Automated Drive Systems, ADS, did when they partnered up with them. ePlan is helping companies like ADS create standardized processes for more efficient engineering. That's because ePlan is more than your typical CAD software and is ideal for creating electrical schematics and panel layouts. When ADS needed to become a leaner operation, ePlan standardized their creation of electrical schematics and panel layouts, and the data from ePlan fed directly back to equipment that automates both panel wiring and enclosure modification. It even creates 3D digital twins of panels so you can visualize the configuration and design before building the real thing. So, if you're building panels and you too are trying to run lean while reducing your design and build times like ADS did, then go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ePlan to learn more. And while you're at it, don't miss episode 132 featuring our full-length interview with their well-traveled solutions architect, Sean Mulherin. He's got some good stories, but for now, it's time to get back to today's episode. I've been writing ferociously. I'm looking at all the notes I've got from that. I think I'm going to recap a couple things that you said for the audience, because this may end up being one of the most tangible, like immediately kind of take action on takeaways or like at least shifting mindset. You talked about how you could do either incremental changes, which we covered early in the interview, but I like where you made the shift to disruptive changes as well. And I think your example of a restaurant, essentially food distribution business, turning into more of a service provider because they know what makes restaurants successful and what doesn't. And I can't think of any restaurant owner that wouldn't like to have someone that kind of understands that from a macro level because they see everything. Because what is it like something like 90% of restaurants close within the first couple of years? I can't remember the exact, exact statistic, but it is a challenging business to be in. But, uh, 
know that one of your lines, the biggest thing that keeps us from disrupting is ourselves and how AI is going to be a way to unlock that. I think a lot of really powerful, tangible stuff in there for, hey, if you're a manufacturer out there and you're trying to figure out ways to start thinking about AI differently, I think those are great ways to do it. So my next question is, I feel like a lot of, and and you've kind of answered this a little bit, but a lot of manufacturers or executives are probably thinking, how do I apply AI to a particular problem? Like that's what they're asking themselves, right? And I think you've given some really good examples of the ways to think about it and the ways to do it. Are there other things they need to do in advance of doing that just so they're not looking at AI for the sake of AI, but they're really looking at it the right way? Yeah, yeah. A um, couple couple areas there that I think are really important. Um, the first is we've talked about sort of the executive envisioning, executive alignment mm-hmm. component of this, but a step after that, or maybe even in conjunction with it, is broadening the tent. So many companies, they're scared to engage the broader employee base in the envisioning of where AI can take our business, mm-hmm. when that is exactly the step that every business needs to do. Every business needs to engage their employees to make them part of the solution of how we take the business that exists today and turn it into the business that will exist tomorrow that is transforming their work and transforming the way they execute on their activities to achieve their mission. But the ideas need to come from, in many cases, the ground up, the grassroots. So the most successful leaders that I've seen here have been all in, They've told their organization that this is part of their strategy. They've hosted broad envisioning sessions to enable or organizational elements across the entire business, accounting, finance, sales, production, et cetera, to be part of art of the possible, understanding where it can go, coming up with a list of ideas. Now, you may do only a small percentage of those, and maybe the, the moonshot ideas are coming from a select few. Mm-hmm. But what that does is it, it harnesses the creative power of that organization yeah. and lowers the threat threshold of the rest of the business to let them focus in on the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Following from that, when you start selecting where you're going to take it and you start chasing the you know mission-driven opportunities that exist in the disruptive space as well as the incremental space, there's three elements of this that every organization needs to think about. The first is that you need to have a sponsor for every idea. And that sponsor needs to exist in the business that's going to support the forward movement of the idea because they don't, yeah. they don't move into production overnight. They need to be supported by the business area that's going to achieve the ROI. So that's the first element. The second element is it must have ROI. We tell our customers, we will not do projects that don't have return on investment. Yeah. There's too much opportunity to chase, to chase uh, AI scenarios that don't have return on investment now is a great time to be able to articulate that ROI and to measure it and to prove it. So we've spent a lot of time developing ROI calculation tools to be able to help with accelerating the realization of that and proving it to a customer. So that's the second thing. The third thing is you have to have the data. And I don't mean that in like a waiting for Godot, we have to have all the data across the entire organization ready kind of message. That's It's sometimes a cop-out. Like I'll talk to executives that'll say, we're not really ready for AI because our data isn't ready. And it's sort of like this blanket comment across the entire organization when, yes, you've got some use cases that are moonshots that you want to tackle where you're going to have to work intentionally toward that mission Mm -hmm. to get the data ready for it. 
Amen. Go after that. That's on the on the radar. But associated with that are these incremental ideas where the data is sitting there to be used. Maybe it's the manuals you use for your your supply chain reps to be able to you know resolve issues for customers. Yeah. Maybe it's the like internal use cases for HR. All of these have data that's like ready to be taken advantage of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so companies that think about like how is the data ready for this use case, not how is it ready for a like broader, a broader scenario where there is no real like a use case alignment. And that also helps us to enable the data strategy in a way which is centric to value as opposed to enabling a data strategy that's just sort of like, if we build it, they will come, which is the way that a lot of companies chase data strategies in the past. So, all right, let's say that you've, you're kind of chasing down and attacking some use cases now. What we found is that companies need to have a, a realistic understanding that as they chase those use cases, they need to support them through the POC pilot production lifecycle and be able to understand that through that process, they're going to have to iterate in order to raise the accuracy and its its suitability for true production uses. Mm -hmm. And that's supported by the ROI scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to show promise. You're going to show promise early. It's Mm -hmm. easy to put together a POC. It's hard to put something into production. Mm -hmm. But as you get it to production, then you can start measuring the ROI. The last thing is... Companies need to think about the scaled scenario. So it's easy to think about one use case and how it's tied to tied to ROI or the mission that I have and I'm trying to disrupt my organization. What wraps around all these things is, what does this architecture look like at scale? How do I govern it? How do I apply safety? How do I protect it from a security perspective? And all of that needs to be controlled in the context of the use cases. And it's not like a, it's sort of like a uh, chicken and the egg use case, right? Like, you know, some people will like block themselves from achieving forward progress because they're so worried about it, but they haven't even done anything yet. So there's, they're sort of like stalling themselves from even gaining forward progress. Yeah. And the flip side, you can't get too far down the road without actually building that into your process. Mm-hmm. So it kind of comes along for the ride and it has to be an area of investment, especially in large organizations where you're going to do hundreds and hundreds of use cases mm-hmm. and there has to be some sort of pattern around it. Yeah. So I've been, again, taking notes nonstop as you've been talking. I'm going to tie one of the things you talked about earlier back to one of the constant themes on the show recently, and that's the importance of the folks on the front line. I haven't been doing this intentionally, but this has been like the core focus of a bunch of recent episodes as well. Um, That's where you got to get the ideas from. That's where you can make your incremental improvements and maybe your disruptive improvements as well. And then if I captured your steps correctly, got to have a sponsor. In addition to pulling the ideas from the front line, you got to have someone within the group that's going to achieve that ROI. You got to have a sponsor there. And you also need ROI. That was step two that you mentioned, because I'm sure you get pitched plenty of projects to work on that. You're like, okay, well, this is cool, but how's this going to like, how's this tied to revenue? Third thing was you need the data, but I think you said something really important there that it, it doesn't need to be every bit of data inside of a facility. It needs to be for the use case. Um, you said build a data strategy central to the value, and I think that makes a lot of sense and hopefully something people take away for any type of transformational effort they're trying to do with and win their business. And then lastly, think about the scale of the scenario. Super important. Someone else I was just talking to referred to this as doing a lighthouse rather than a pilot. When you're trying something new, 
I think what we saw in the past decade was a lot of people got stuck in pilot purgatory where they did something, they proved it out, but maybe they weren't proving out something that was going to be able to scale or go further within the business or the enterprise. So I love all the things you added in there. Did I get that right? Did I capture those pretty pretty accurately? You did. You did. And actually, I was you were almost channeling a little bit of a previous guest, Brian Evergreen, with the, was it st- Pilot Purgatory Steamroller? I, yes, that was, uh, I still quote that quite a bit. Yeah, he was one of the early folks. I, in fact, I don't think, well, no, we talked about um, Autonomous Transformation in that episode, yeah. but he's got a book out now. Uh, I think it's called Autonomous it Transformation. Is, yeah. Yeah, he's got that one out. Um, he's done a lot. He'll need to get back on the show at some point because he is definitely in our, our group of AI uh, experts that we've started curating on this show. So, you know, as we get to the end of the conversation, is there anything maybe specific to manufacturers you want to highlight? Anything you wish I would have asked you? What comes to mind? Because I think this has been an excellent, like, I'll call it AI 101 in a lot of ways. A lot of ways to start rethinking how to do it correctly. Anything else you want to share before we wrap things up? Yeah, I, I think the thing that I've I've discovered, maybe not discovered, just experienced as a result of the AI revolution recently is that the bar has been lowered dramatically for organizations to be able to get into the game. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look back several years, again, the, you had to put a lot of chips on the table. You had to put a lot of effort into that first scenario. That's not to say that, like, there isn't a lot of effort, but to get started down the road of understanding where your organization can go and then being able to invest in getting results, even medium-sized to smaller organizations can translate repeatable processes into automated processes that free up their people to be able to be more mm-hmm. and to do so in a way that is is sort of sized to their organization. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it used to be like, I can only talk to the enterprises because the only ones they really can invest to get that kind of outcome, the only ones that can hire data scientists and so on. We've really arrived at a point where you're in the AI practitioner space yeah. where more individuals can take advantage of commodity tools to be able to achieve more within their organization. Um, second thing that that we didn't really talk about, but I think it's important to convey, is we talked a lot about mission-driven use cases, ones that are centric directly to what the organization does, right? So, okay. like, so um, I produce boats. I want to do that better in centric, uh, how I sell those to my customers, how I help them have a great time on the water, how I produce that product operationally, okay? So I the mission-driven use cases. Where AI is also going to impact every organization is the generic sort of rising tide floats all boats productivity capabilities across every manufacturer. That's a little less, uh, maybe less to the floor side, but okay. uh, certainly across pro- all aspects of the business. Think about it like um, if I didn't have spell check anymore mm-hmm. and every single time I wrote an email and I was misspelling a word, I'd go out to my thesaurus or my dictionary and I'd be like, looking for the spelling and then I go type it in and, and, or maybe I just keep continue to misspell things. And I sent, sent my emails, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now I've got spell check and it just sort of automatically replaces everything that's wrong. And sometimes I don't even think about it. I just I have words that I always spell wrong and it replaces it with the right spelling. It's funny why it's spell check is always the thing that I think of when I'm like, you know, is AI taking away some of the things that I used to be really proud of? I'm like, you know what, as someone that grew up where basically spell check was a thing the whole time I was growing up, it's like, yeah. you know, no, the AI is going to get rid of some of the stuff that we didn't like doing anyway or wasn't core to what we did. Just like 
spell check, albeit I'm probably not as good of a speller as my parents are just because I didn't have the necessity of getting a lot of that stuff right. But I think of when I think of like a simple way to be like, hey, there's a lot of cool opportunity here. Did I miss like not having to know how to spell everything? No, I love having spell check to be able to kind of take care of that task for me. Precise. So, didn't mean to interrupt there, but it just it's such a tangible example that I think of all the time. Yeah. So that that is like a really basic form of artificial intelligence that we can we can take forward to what are the Microsofts and the Salesforces and the Googles and so on doing at the general productivity level mm-hmm. that's lifting up how long it takes us to do this. Like, how long does it take me to write an email? How long does it take me to create that presentation for the customer I've got to go to today? Yeah. How, how long does it take me to put together the, the report that I can, can I ask a question of my data and have it tell me the answer? Or do I need to spend the, the day and a half creating the dashboard for me to be able to infer information from Right. All these sort of general improvements is something that an executive can't also leave off the table. Understanding that that's going to translate into percentages of available time that you now have to help them harness. And what's real reason I bring this up as well as the other aspect of it is this is all dependent on us enabling our employees to be able to be more. And it really, for me, returns back to that. Everybody has the opportunity, both in that commodity zone and in the mission-driven zone, to help the organizations to think about it at the macro level mm-hmm. and to enable training that's not just tech skills. I think this is where we sort of break down in the uh, the sort of moving people forward space is we think about AI as just like, oh, good, like I'm going to go to the the colleges and the this and the that, so I'm going to create a certification to learn AI skills. Yeah, there's some technical skill sort of adoption there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but even more so, it might be helping them to reawaken certain interpersonal skills or creativity yeah. skills or literary skills or mm-hmm. envisioning skills that maybe they haven't used that muscle in a while mm-hmm. and they need help unlocking it again. Yeah. So that I think is where we need to look at this picture a little differently than the way we look at uh, technology education myopically in the past, where it's like, I'm just getting a, I'm getting a, uh, a technical skill that I use to do a job. Like, no, this is a little bit more about like helping your people to be able to be more than it is just a, a technique or something. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this episode has been like a shifting the way we think about AI in a very tangible style type of episode. So I've enjoyed having you on here. Last question, what's the best way to connect with you and concurrency as we wrap up here? Oh, man, yeah. Uh, so LinkedIn, yeah. probably my best way to connect. So uh, Endless Nosky uh, would be a great way to hit me up or concurrency directly on our, our LinkedIn account. Uh, hit us up. Love to talk more about it. Absolutely. And of course, I'm going to have links for everyone out there that wants to learn more, connect with Nathan after this is all said and done. Awesome conversation today. Thanks for coming to this iconic piece of milwaukee brewing history today for our beverages thanks so much cheers yeah cheers hey thank you for listening i'm assuming if you made it this far you liked this episode you're probably into artificial intelligence And if that's the case, I should recommend a couple more episodes for you. Episode 118 is with Brian Evergreen. Nathan brought him up in the middle of the interview. That's where we really first started talking about artificial intelligence on the show. 
almost a year ago. Also, about five months ago, we did episode 149. That was with Jeff Winter. And that's where we talked about some initial AI strategies for manufacturers. I've got links to these over in the show notes page. Check them out. As always, hey, if you want to learn more, the show notes page is manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 168. That's the episode number. There you can find links to all the spots that Nathan was recommending you check out plus the Concurrency website, as well as Central Waters Brewing. I can't skip them here at the end. They have their original location in central Wisconsin. We were obviously at their Milwaukee location this week, but they do a lot of cool things like an annual barrel-aged beer release like a lot of breweries do. Theirs is, I would say, a bigger deal than most. Anyway, definitely check them out. I actually put together my top 10 breweries list from the U.S. not too long ago, and I can say that Central Waters was definitely, definitely part of that list. Okay, a couple final housekeeping items, and then we're out of here. First up, I want to thank our sponsors for this week, Gray Solutions as well as ePlan. Thank you to both of these companies, the teams over there, both excellent groups. Thank you for making this show possible. And of course, I want to invite you, the listener to the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community over on LinkedIn. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. That'll take you straight to our private group. Would love to have you in there because we're really, let's say, expanding on conversations like the one we talked about during today's episode in that group. It's an opportunity to chat and connect with other folks in the manufacturing industry that are driven in their careers, that want to change their businesses for the better. Anyway, great group, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And of course, if you are enjoying Manufacturing Happy Hour, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify. It's just a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it these days, is a five-star rating and review. The review's optional, but it doesn't need to be all that long, but the written reviews definitely help out. So, hey, thank you again for being part of Manufacturing Happy Hour, being a listener, being part of this community. And with that, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.